Welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond, the Lakeshore Museum Center. My name is Pat Horn. Having worked at the museum for many years, I've had in the course of my career many different jobs. Included in that list was being a tour guide at the Hackney and Hume homes. Now, if you've ever visited those homes, which were made around 1890, you might, like me, be fascinated by the technology demonstrated in the houses. One technology that you do not see a lot of, though, is electricity, and this always interests me. While in the houses, I have often wondered, when did electricity come to Muskegon? Who made the electricity, and how exactly did that work and get to your home? And when exactly did it catch on? On today's podcast, I'm going to attempt to answer all of those questions and uncover the history of early electricity in Muskegon, a hair-raising subject, both quite literally and figuratively, that held many surprises for me that I hope you will find will surprise and interest you as well. The earliest mention I could find of electricity in Muskegon comes from April 6, 1870, from an advertisement in the Muskegon Chronicle. This advertisement was for a scientific exhibition led by N.E. Fish and R.B. Cobb, and was only in town for two days. The show covered chemistry, stereopticon views from around the world, and electricity. The show on electricity included many various experiments and discussions including A History of the Theories of Electricity by Benjamin Franklin and Charles-Francois de Cisternay Dufay, and The Causes of Electrical Attraction and Repulsion. More excitingly, though, were a series of experiments that included names such as Radiating Feathers, Long-Haired Man, Animated Spider, and Chime of Bells. Now, funnily enough, as I read these over, I had to share this experiment lineup with my coworkers as these experiments sound nearly identical to the demonstrations we do with our Van de Graaff generator in our school programs today. On top of these experiments, though, the show also included the electrical dancing image and the electrical sportsman, the latter of which appears to be some type of electric gun used to hunt birds. Now, if this was some type of electric trigger device, or if it actually shot electricity, and if it was used to hunt real birds or just mock birds, I cannot say for sure. However, it does sound interesting regardless. The show also had a more powerful device in the form of an electric cannon, which they discharged regularly. One thing they add that made me chuckle was the offer for free electric shocks for all who desired. Other things on display included Leiden jars, which are a device used to store electricity, much like modern-day capacitors, wood split by electricity, opaque substances rendered transparent by electricity, electric reel, an electric lamp, a illuminated star, and more. However, the showstopper undoubtedly had to be the explanation and demonstration of a lightning rod with it being used to blow up a house. Which left me with many questions. Was this a full-size house, or just a model? Was it actually lightning, and you had to wait for a storm to pass by, or were they just using static electricity to make some type of small-scale demonstration? We can never be sure. After this date, it was not until another three years later that I saw much about electricity in Muskegon's past. It seems the newspaper tried to keep Muskegon Nights up to date on the newest inventions in electricity, including in January of 1873, an inventor working on trying to power a boat using electricity and an electromagnet. This, however, didn't see success as the motor rotated so fast it broke apart. In 1875, electricity starts being touted in the paper for the cure of all sorts of things, including curing nervous diseases, chronic diseases of the chest, head, liver, stomach, kidneys, blood, and as a cure for aches and pains. Another curious mention in the paper is the use of electricity for restarting someone's heart when a doctor attached one end of the wire to the patient's side and the other end to their neck in an early version of a not-so-safe AED. 
As far as electricity being used in Muskegon, the first widely reported use didn't occur until June 7th of 1881. It was at this time that a test was tried at the lumber booming grounds where the logs from the Muskegon River were sorted by their marks. For the test, it seems some type of portable generator was brought in and used to light the booming grounds for a night so the men could work through sorting logs and hopefully deliver more to the mills. Some 300 citizens came to watch the site. However, this test was a failure as not enough light was given off to discern any of the marks on the logs. A little over a year later, though, and another attempt at using electricity was tried with the formation of the Muskegon Electric Company. By November 7th, they had 25 light subscriptions, each light which was paid for individually. Their power plant was located near Western and 7th, and the company's president was lumber baron John Torrent. Included in their light subscriptions were several factories and stores nearby. The Chronicle mentions on November 11th that workmen will soon start placing wires and poles in the city, and that the machines to produce electricity are expected shortly. With many businesses subscribing for a light, the paper mentions that, quote, Muskegon will put on metropolitan airs in consequence of having electric lights, end quote. Now, early electricity, as you might imagine, had some hiccups and issues, and this was certainly the case with the Muskegon Electric Company. They had problems with bulbs burning out very quickly, lasting only a few hours in some cases, and the machinery needing to be fine-tuned to make sure it produced the proper amount of electricity. Light consistency was also difficult as lights would fade in and out or flicker, making it difficult to use them to see by, but also, I'm sure, causing many headaches. By February, after very inconsistent lighting, the Muskegon Electrical Company had to replace all of its light bulbs in hopes of improving service. The type of bulb used at the time was called an arc light. This was a type of bulb where the current would jump between two pieces of metal through a carbon gas, with the arcing spark providing the light. This type of light could be very bright, but also need lots of maintenance and produced a very loud buzzing sound. However, the bulbs in Muskegon, it was mentioned at times, only produced two candles worth, which isn't very much. By February 15, 1883, most merchants had stopped using the electric lights due to its issues and the system not being perfected, and went back to the original gas lighting. In March, the company was reorganized a bit and became the Muskegon Electrical Light Company, but they couldn't keep in business. While this failure set back electricity in Muskegon, it didn't last long. At the end of 1883, George Torrent, son of John, restarted the Muskegon Electric Light Company, also known as Brush Electric Lights, which was a U.S. worldwide business that licensed its system. There was initial hesitation for people to jump back on the electricity bandwagon, but by December 17, 1883, George had secured 60 light subscriptions and another 37 lights ordered on the way along with beginning setting up a five-mile circuit of wires to connect them all. This new brush electric generator was housed in the Kelly Brothers factory, but eventually the generator would be moved to its own building. The new brush generator did much to help the flickering glow of the bulbs and regulate them into a steady light. It also gave bulbs the proper amount of electricity, meaning they didn't burn out as fast. Torrent, happy with how things were going, even petitioned the city in 1884 to light downtown streets with electricity, but this was declined as the city preferred to stay with gas lights. From 1884 till 1887, not much changed, and electricity still seemed to be a niche market. However, in 1887, the spread of incandescent bulbs in Muskegon led to some big changes. These new types of bulbs, similar to what we have today, produced a much softer light that didn't hurt your eyes and wasn't as bright as arc lights, which could be much like a spotlight. 
This made them much more feasible for indoor use. One of the first adapters of these new bulbs were sawmills, who were only previously limited by the amount of daylight they had to cut boards. With indoor lighting, they could work around the clock. This new lighting spread rapidly, so that by the end of 1887, over half of the mills on the lake were lit up at night. For these hours, most mills hired separate shifts, so that the night shift worked under the lights, with the day shift coming and working during daylight. One thing that really stood out to me in this story is that the year 1887 happens to be the year that Muskegon cut the most lumber in its history, with around 660 million board feet cut that year, even though numbers for the booming ground didn't show a dramatic increase in the amount of logs coming down the river. Thus it seems that electricity played a major role in Muskegon being given the moniker Lumbering Queen. Sadly for electricity, this triumph was short-lived as the following year lumber production started slacking off and continued to trend downward as the effects of deforestation reduced the supply of wood available and many mills no longer needed to operate all day and night. In December of 1887, the Chronicle toured a new power plant for the Muskegon Electric Light Company who had recently had 9 tons of copper delivered to wire up more of the city. This tour of the power plant gives us great insight into how electricity was produced and its capacity. The new plant located on Terrace Street downtown was 100 by 40 feet. It used a 175 horsepower steam engine that was run on burning oil to produce the heat to make steam. This engine moved a 14-foot diameter flywheel. This flywheel was connected by belts to the various dynamos, or motors, and would turn the magnets on them to make electricity. Six total dynamos were powered this way, four of which produced electricity to power 170 arc bulbs, and two others that could power up to 900 incandescent bulbs throughout the city. Thankfully, they had this new plan at the end of 1888, when the city agreed to let electricity light up Muskegon streets, with a deal to have 100 1200 candle power lights run year-round at the cost of $100 per light. The hours of shutoff were also specified in the paper, with the lights running until 4 a.m. in November, December, January, and February, and 3 a.m. in all the other months. In 1889, another big development for electricity in Muskegon occurred with the decision of the Muskegon Traction Company to replace their horse-drawn streetcars with electric streetcars. This occurred after Frank Nims and D.D. Irwin of the company visited Cleveland and Detroit to see other electric streetcars in action. Both were impressed, saying, quote, The day of horsepower for streetcars are numbered. End quote. This upgrade would cost the company $25,000 and they needed the rights from the city council to run the electric lines overhead for the cars. But the electric streetcars could move much faster, at up to 12 miles per hour, and could make the round trip from downtown to the beach in 40 minutes, versus the hour and a half of the horse. The electricity could also heat the cars in the wintertime. So it was decided by both the city and traction company that the investment was well worth it. In 1900, the Muskegon Traction Company bought the Muskegon Electric Light Company help power their streetcars and diversify their company, later becoming the Muskegon Traction and Lighting Company. In 1903, with demand for electricity rising, they built a new power plant outfitted with new generators. This plant included two 250-kilowatt-per-hour generators and one 75-kilowatt-per-hour generator to produce electricity for residential housing, totaling 575 kilowatts per hour if they were all running at full capacity. To put that in perspective, a modern house uses about 1.3 kilowatts per hour. The paper mentions, though, that typically one of these generators was held in reserve for peak times. Inside the plant, they also had two other generators, 
one a 300 kilowatt one for operating the streetcars, and another 200 kilowatt one for use in factories and businesses. To wrap it up here, I did want to move us ahead a bit in the timeline. After the turn of the century, electricity was cemented in place as part of the present and future. However, it wasn't universally used in homes or cities around Muskegon County or Michigan. It would take a much longer time before the infrastructure was there for widespread use. In 1910, a large group of power companies throughout the state merged and formed Consumers Power Company, a name we are all familiar with today. Showing the diversity of electric products available in 1916 is an advertisement from a company known as The Electric Company. In this advertisement, touting Christmas presents, they say, quote, Make this a merry Christmas. Make it an electrical Christmas. And offer a catalog with various electric appliances. These included toasters, percolators, grills, a small water heater, hair dryers, heating pads, lamps, vacuum sweepers, washing machines, and many other things we can find in our modern homes. From then on, the amount of electric power devices and appliances would only increase as a new power source spread further and further throughout the cities and into the countryside. Thank you for joining me on this hopefully illuminating episode, and we hope to have you back in two weeks for our next one. 